Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and it is Icoria Top 10 time, my friend. You know what that means? No. Uh, what does it mean? We're closer to rotation. Oh, is that what we're celebrating now? That's what I'm celebrating. I don't know. Okay. Do the cards that you have a particular objection to leave at the next rotation? Some of them do. I mean, it, it gets harder, right? Like, there, okay. there's still some things like fires kicking around, but like Wilderness Reclamation will be gone. That's that's a step, right? Teferi gets to Ooh. leave. Yup. Bye. Well... This, this goes really well into the start of our top 10, so I'll just have this discussion <laughs> with you now. Also leaving in the next rotation would be Corset 2020. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Because we'll, so, we'll, we'll have another Corset and another base set by then. Yes. This is obviously so premature that it's almost not worth talking about. But I, I was joking today on Twitter that everyone was going to be real disappointed when we get to the end of this Ikoria top 10 list. And the number one card in Ikoria, I'm going to spoil it for oh, you right yeah. now. Yeah. It's Aethergust by like a large, large margin. That card by a is, lot. It matters so much. It's by far the most important card in standard right now. I guess the best card in standard. Like, I don't know what that means even, but everything should be considering Aethergust. And that's a little frustrating. Like, I think the community at large is like enough Aethergust. We don't want to see it anymore. But can you imagine? what this format looks like if there is no Aethergust. Like, I'm sure you watched plenty of the streamer showcase yesterday. Some. This set enables degenerate things. Like, you can just get yeah. up to absolute nonsense, and the only glue holding everything in place is Aethergust. It is by far the most important card. Yeah, it's it's kind of gross that way, right? Where it's like, hey, look at this set with all these wedge cards. Turns out all the wedge cards get dinged by Aethergust. Also, there's this like rare cycle of ultimatums that do cool things and, you know, can potentially win the game and in a normal format is something potentially worth building around. And then there's stuff like Nethroy where it's like, oh, yeah, invest seven mana in this. And it's like, no, no thanks. But on the other hand, on the other hand, if we didn't have Aethergust, there would be a lot of like, you know, Song of Creation combo decks and uh, all of these... Uh, mutate decks that I saw just like, you know, putting all their lands onto the battlefield and there's seven different polymorphs in this set that do ridiculous things. So it's like Aether Gust is the hero, maybe? Yeah, Aether Gust and Mystical Dispute are going to be so, so, so important. And Ugh. I think that is what informed the vast majority of our top 10 process and also led us down a sort of different path of presenting top tens of this go around. And I guess I'll leave it up to you to talk about how we're going to do things this pass. Yeah. For the vast majority of our time on this podcast, we've each done our own top 10 and just counted down one by one. And then for the last episode, we tried to come together and have a consensus top 10. And we sort of tried to do the same thing this time, but we, we agreed on a lot of things. And then there were some things that we were just split on. So we each have a bottom five for our top 10. And then we have a consensus top five between the two of us. Yes. And I think it is very fair to say that had we just done our own top 10 list, some of the cards that appear in our personal top 10s would have fallen in our one through five slots. So it's this weird kind of dynamic going on where I know some of the cards I'm going to be talking about in my 
10 through six slots would have fallen in my own personal one through five slots. But we decided consensus was more important for actually establishing the top five cards in the set. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if we're both in agreement that something is quite good and is going to see widespread play in standard, then it should probably be top five, right? Right. That matters more than our outlier opinion that this card that the other person dislikes would actually be number one. Correct. So I, I don't know. I think this is kind of an interesting way of doing it. It's one of those things where we could just do a, a top 10 list and not really talk about why we came to those conclusions and just talk about the cards. And it's not very confusing. You know, you just go through the list, you talk about them. Cool. Easy peasy done. And this one is like basically like the SCG players championship <laughs> thing. You know, it's just like it's it's convoluted for no reason. But here we are. Yeah, we we added a lot of extra steps, but the goal, much like in the SCG Players Championship, and I'm not just shilling for them here, like they do have a purpose to that nonsensical format, and you and I agree it's pretty nonsensical, but the purpose is to make for meaningful matches of magic. Our purpose in presenting them this way is to have meaningful discussions that will hopefully inform your choices as you build your decks for week one of New Standard. And we have to make this podcast real quick because Ikoria is out on Arena, and right. I got to open my packs, and I played a match, a singular match, Brian, and now I'm jonesing. Yeah, I thankfully got to play a little bit yesterday as part of the streamer showcase. Thanks, Wizards, for the free, fully stocked preview Hashtag account. from sponsored. the No, from the absolute bottom of my heart, I am so, so thankful that I was able to participate in the Ikoria streamer showcase, and it helped me learn a lot for this podcast. So Please enjoy my heartfelt thanks to all of you at Wizards and my love and adoration. No, I wasn't I wasn't being mean about the hashtag sponsored thing. Like I'm not I wasn't either. This is a completely genuine statement. I'm very thankful. No, I know. I just started saying it and you just like cut me off like, hey, don't be a dick. Like <laughs> I actually appreciate this. And I'm like, well, no, I was like obviously it's it's a it's kind of a running joke, but yes. it is also pretty necessary and i have yes. not made fun of like a, a single person for doing that or anything i may have muted that word I good think, idea on twitter uh, yeah i'm i'm being over the top about it there is a reason yeah. for it and i, I am it's, actually thankful i got to participate in this it's just i know everyone on the planet is sick of hearing those same words over but you have to say them it's you not do. your fault I know. it's not your fault it's literally the law if you want magic to continue existing <laughs> and making sets you should probably just let them you know, follow the law. That's all, that's all I'm saying. It's a good idea. Anyway, uh, hashtag sponsored. We will count down our 10 through six, our individuals, we'll discuss them, and then we'll come to our consensus top five, which case Ether Gust is the de facto S tier card of this set. Yes. All right, my number 10. You ready for this? Hit us. And we're still reading these this week. I think it's still early enough yes. that we should be, okay. Yep, this is this is going to be the last time though. Yep. So my number ten is Whisper Squad. This is B for a one-one human soldier. One B. Search your library for a card named Whisper Squad. Put it onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. I love this card. It is not like busted or broken or anything. It's just a good enabler. It is very reminiscent of things like Doom Traveler. And granted, we have a, a decent amount of Doom Travelers uh, in this set and some other sets in the standard. So this does fill a role though, because it is a black one drop that gives you a little bit of value, helps you spend your mana, 
we were talking before the cast and you were like, yeah, it's not really mana efficient. And it's like, yeah, you're right. But if you ever have unspent mana, this gives you something to do. And that's rad. Uh, and this is just like primo sacrifice fodder, way more than gutter bones, you know? And the Racto sacrifice decks played gutter bones a decent amount of the time, not in huge numbers usually, but uh, Whisper Squad is a card that does gutter bones' job better unless you really need the chip damage. Yeah, I, I'm going to push back a little bit. I think it does a much better job enabling the mid-range style of games that those sacrifice decks can play and may be incentivized to play as we move into this new set. So in those circumstances, I could totally see Whisper Squad supplanting gutter bones. It does that job better than gutter bones ever did. But the aggression oftentimes has been an important part of Racto Sacrifice, particularly when the meta breaks in a certain way. Uh, it was the best response to like the rise of Teamer Reclamation. Those decks had to get very aggressive again to turn that matchup around, and they did. They did so effectively. So it, it really depends where we're falling on the spectrum, I think. Right. However, the most recent iterations of the deck have been more grindy with Croxa, Croxa and right. Meyer Triton, stuff like that. So Whisper Squad fits into that quite well. Also, one thing I want to note about this card, well, two things actually. First is that it's a human, which is a very good creature type. Second is that yeah. you don't have to play four and you don't even necessarily want to play four because you don't want to draw multiples, Right. So in the sacrifice decks, I'm very happy, you know, like the other ones used to play like two gutter bones or three. I'm very happy just playing like three whisper squads and calling it. Okay. That sounds like a fine approach to me. Uh, you did a nice job selling me on this card. I, like I said, there's going to be situations where doom traveler effects can be better and you just want to actually play a one drop, but this card really shines when you can wait a little bit on it. And if you're consenting to longer games, which I think a lot of these decks can do if they have the right disruption pieces and something like the Orzov setups for sacrifice decks, which I saw a little bit of in the streamer showcase, and they look pretty good. I think they could benefit from taking a longer game approach using something like Whisper Squad to fuel the new enchantment that I'm going to get the name of real quick. Bastion of Remembrance, when Bastion of Remembrance enters the battlefield, 1-1 one, one human soldier token. Whenever a creature you control dies, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So I've seen some cool setups around that card playing a much longer game, more traditional aristocrat style. And that was really cool to see. Yeah, uh, that card is solid. I, I like the fact that it's this enchantment blood artist, but it also gives you like a little bit of value, a little something mm -hmm. to play with. Yeah. Not, not too shabby. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm pretty happy with Whisper Squad in general. Like we we both mentioned, there's a lot of Doom Traveler type things and even Grim Initiate if you want to go that path. But this is black, and black doesn't have anything like that aside from gutter bones. And a lot of these sacrifice decks are base black. So you're not gonna necessarily have red on turn one for Grim Initiate. And the white black ones, I think, are little more split down the middle, you know, so you certainly can go that route. But if you don't want to play eight white one drops and you want to kind of split a little bit because you're going to have like, you know, six swamps and six planes, then you can go to this card. Also, I'll note, we keep calling things Doom Travelers. We should probably just call them Haunted Witnesses, which is the card that is actually in standard and the one that people may be familiar with, as opposed to Doom Traveler, which has not been around for a very long time. You know what, though? So many people are familiar with the name Aristocrats. Yeah, that that I feel like at some point, maybe you had to know what the original deck is. Um, maybe not, though. I don't know. I don't know. Magic's weird. We've added a lot of new players over the past 
year or so, and I try to be as considerate of them as possible, but you and no, I both me know. Too, me too, me too. I'm, we I'm have just... default speech patterns, though. Like, we fall into these all yes. the time without even thinking about them. Yep. And I, I just wanted to point that out where it's like I, I would normally not want aristocrats to be the de facto naming convention for a sacrifice deck, right? Like, right. Why, why don't you just call it sacrifice? Sacrifice. But and going. I think that's what we do on SCG, right? That's the default yeah. naming convention there. Yeah, but like as as far as like commander and stuff like that is concerned, I I just hear so many people throw around the word aristocrats that I would not expect. You know, like people who've been playing Magic for like six to twelve months, and it's like, what, huh? Like, Interesting. Okay, yeah. So you know that this is a thing. You know that this is like what the deck is called. Maybe you know what Doom Traveler is. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But it, yeah. Like I I want to default to we should be as open and inviting as possible, and then things like that happen. And it's like, oh, maybe we're you know, like underselling the, the the base a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, your number 10. My number 10. After saying how important Aethergust is, somehow my number 10 card is still Song of Creation. And I didn't expect to have this here. I will go ahead and read it for you. Song of Creation is one colorless green, blue, red enchantment. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. Whenever you cast the spell, draw two cards at the beginning of your end step. Discard your hand. So... It's hard to think of a card that gets blown up more by Aethergust than Song of Creation. It also gets targeted by Mystical Dispute somehow, which will be very important. And all those things checked against it. It's hard for me to put this card high on my list. But when you see this card in play, it's very clear it gets up to something special. And I don't think that in and of itself would be enough to make this a successful part of Standard because of the fail case of Aethergust and as Mystical Dispute as well. However... One of the really exciting spots I saw this card in was in like teamer adventures setups with Lucky Clover and this card kind of replacing Escape to the Wilds, which is weird. And then you think about it and you're like, wait a second, teamer adventures isn't keeping these cards in its hand anyway. They're just kind of laying there on the side of the battlefield waiting to be cast. And if you do put a song of creation into play, you still get the mana ramp that was previously provided from Escape to the Wilds, except you get it multiple times. And then despite the fact that you you know, got blown out by the Aether Gush, you get to rebuild immediately because you have all these cards sitting in an adventure. So I really yeah. liked it in that spot. And it's got the just broken combo potential as well to really go off. So I'm still going to keep Song of Creation on my list, despite the very real targets going to be wearing in the first few weeks. Yeah, I think getting it disenchanted, like Wilted, Gem Razor, and stuff like that, is much worse than Aether Gust especially if you are being cognizant of the fact that you need things like Adventurers or Uro to ensure that you have a spell on the next turn after you discard mm-hmm. your hand. So yeah, like they have you discard your hand, they Aether Gust it, you put it on top of your library next turn, you play it, play a Brazen Borrower or something from Exile and draw two cards and just kind of get the chain going again. So I don't actually see a ton of fail case scenarios for this sort of thing, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, it's a it's a great way to get value from your combo card. You have to be cognizant of it in deck building. And I think if you are, Song of Creation can still reward you. There's also escape cards, let's keep in mind, which will trigger Song of Creation. I haven't seen a ton of that, although I was paired against someone. I didn't get their name because it was in Japanese, and I'm unable to I'm translate, intrigued. unfortunately. Obviously, Jerry is a huge fan of the Japanese Magic players. It was essentially escape, self-mill, drowned... Uh, what is it? Drowned Secrets? Is that what the blue card is called? Love it. And Song of Creation. Breach. And Thassa's Oracle or? 
Yeah, I think so. I think we were just getting to Breach and Thassa's Oracle, and I, I won, unfortunately, so I didn't get to see what they were doing. I actually milled them out with Garuda body doubler combo, or excuse me, what's the new one called? Spark, Spark Double. double. Uh, I milled them out with that combo. So I did get to see the majority of their deck, but I was kind of moving quickly and didn't take the full list in. I really should have, because it looked very interesting. Those escape setups could be something for Song of Creation as well, where, again, they don't really get a fail case. Yeah, how dare you, Brian, not copy-paste their deck list for me? Uh, very foolish of me. <sighs> what am I going to do with you? You're going to have to build it yourself, and I'm sure you'll come up with a fine version. Deal. Uh, so one of the things that I saw in the streamer showcase for the small portion of time I did tune in, and I, I wrote about Song of Creation a week or so ago, and tuned into Martin Jews' stream, and I saw him just immediately die to one of the things that I cautioned against in my article, which is you have to have a plan to win the game. Yeah. His, his plan was Faye of wishes for Jace, but it, it just so happened that like he couldn't pull that together because it was in like the bottom two cards of his deck or whatever, Mm. or bottom four cards. So like he would cast the granted and then cast the Jace, but die with before the Jace resolved. So yeah, you, you need to have an actual win condition. That's why a lot of my list included Yadaro, where it was like, you know, every every turn or so, you're going to be playing like three or four cards, making your land drops, and you need to move toward actually winning the game. And something like Yadaro does that. And Drosky's build had like a couple Thassa's Oracles and Underworld Breaches. I think that's a, a fine way to go too. But you yep. can't really afford to have this either compact win condition where, you know, the numbers game might screw you over, or you're just like, oh, I'll just kill him with Uro. But like, you can't do that if you have Song of Creation on the battlefield the entire game, because eventually you'll just deck yourself. Yeah, that's a very real concern. And I think uh, this is a hard card to build around. That's the real problem with Song of Creation. It's one that just might take some time to get figured out, but has a lot of potential stored away in it. Yeah, my article should be free by the time this podcast gets put up on star city so if people are more interested in seeing the the various decks i built around this card by all means go check that out yeah i don't i don't think people know that for the most part after a week both of our articles go free on star city and uh i wrote last week or excuse me this week about the top 10 aquaria cards for modern so that should go free probably around tuesday next week always worth checking out that backlog obviously in magic it's very important to stay like up to date and you need that breaking information but there's an opportunity to catch up if you're just not able to swing that subscription fee right now. I understand times are difficult, but you can always check us out a week later. Right. And especially during preview season, it's not like there are tournaments and like, you know, the metagame is moving and stuff like that. Like we are basically just writing single card breakdowns on various things. So a lot of our decks are still just as viable as if we wrote about them today, you know? Yeah. And also we should mention arenadecklist.gg. You and I have dumped a bunch of decks there for the True. streamer showcase purposes. If you're looking to see what we've been playing, check that out. You'll see our later, all of our latest decks there. And we're continuing to update that as well. So you can keep that bookmark, check in. Uh, and I think uh, just basically every day there'll be new decks popping up. Yep. All right. My number nine, Riel the Everwise. One UR, zero three, legendary creature human wizard. This gets plus one, plus O for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. Whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards. The first thing that came to my mind was like, oh, cathartic reunion, right? But I actually think the best thing to do with this is just put it in a cycling deck. 
I saw it in that context. It looked very strong. I also saw tons of people returning to Arclight Phoenix. Yes, you can still play that magic card, believe it or not. I know it's that's legal. shocking. Yeah, it's unbelievable, but it is there and it looks strong. And honestly, I think you and I probably have enough consensus on this card that it could have made our combined list as number six, but splitting up five and five is just much more aesthetically pleasing to me. So we didn't go yes. that route. It's like, oh, seven, seven and three. No, right. No, yeah, thank th you. This is a good magic card. It inspires a lot of new and old archetypes that really get another shot at life. The bursts of card advantage that Rael can provide in certain scenarios, they're going to matter for that deck. If you played, is it Phoenix back in the day prior to the printing of this card? You know, you reached a lot of scenarios where you just didn't have resources anymore. You were very resource light and you had to live out of your graveyard with radical idea, or you needed some burst of card advantage via like finale to be able to get back into the game. Rail solves a lot of that problem on her own. So I, I was impressed by this card all day long. Yeah. It's not that difficult to make work either. You know, it's like she has a bunch of very specific terms on the card, like instant sorcery, like you have to be discarding cards. Like it, in theory, it seems like very restrictive build around, but you look at any sort of is it deck in standard and it's like, oh, this, this kind of just slots into most of the decks. Like you're going to want right. to play some amount of cycling things, some amount of discard things. You're going to have a bunch of instants and sorcerers in your graveyard. Those cards are going to work with like Sprite Dragon or Lord Dracus or Arclight Phoenix or whatever. And it's like, Trying to build is it decks. I, I think I came up with like eight different versions. Yeah, tons of different ways to go, and all of them seem viable at this point. Your number nine, please. My number nine card is a planeswalker. We were a little low on these planeswalkers at first, but I've come around to Luca, Copper Coat Outcast. Of course, Luca, legendary planeswalker, plus one, exile the top three cards of your library. Creature cards exiled this way gain. You may cast this card from exile as long as you control a Luca Planeswalker. Minus two, exile target creature you control, then reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card with higher converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Minus seven, each creature you control deals damage equal to its power to each opponent. Five loyalty to start, three colorless, red, red for Luca. This is maybe the best polymorph ever question all right. mark all right i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest here there are a lot of polymorphs in the set i thought about yeah. building decks around them i eventually chose to not do that because each one polymorphs in different ways and it would require a lot of work <laughs> so i just didn't so you it. just gave up pretty much it was like okay there's there's like a luna there's this thing there's this the cyclone in red and it's just like god i i don't want to have to jump through hoops to like build all of these you know really weird deck lists like normally i'm good for like one a season right it's like oh i'll build a, a vanifar deck right and i'll do the research and figure out all the best things in each slot and blah 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 and for the polymorph stuff i'm just like i can't even can't even do this well Thankfully for all of you, I'm not lazy like Jerry, and I did do this, and I built a Luca's deck, and it was uh, really easy. Actually, I think it's I'm still lazy. I'm just lazy enough, though, to make this deck as simple and as stupid as possible and still realize it's very good in that form. And there's probably a lot of space for it to be much better. But essentially what I did was a bunch of mana creatures, 
for Gilded Goose, for Elysian Caryatid, for Incubation Druid, for Paradise Druid. Then we have Hydroid Crisis, Voracious Hydra. Those still cost two somehow, uh, except they scale infinitely. Play Nissa because that card's broken. Play Luka because that's your entire engine. Leyline of Abundance to really juice those mana creatures. And then whatever top end you want. I tried Nyx Bloom Ancient. Thought being that like if I just triple up all these mana creators, then I'll be able to use Leyline of Abundance to win the game or I'll just have the Hydroid Crisis. Didn't quite pan out how I wanted it to. So I'll probably just go and try and raise four runners, but there's a bunch of other cards you can grab in that spot that are completely fine. And I think that deck is just good enough like that. Like it's a very dumb, very straightforward deck, but it's fine. Now, granted, every single card in the deck gets blown up by Ether Gust, so that's going to come to the table again. But that you have happens a with everything, right? You have a B plan. You can just play big dumb creatures like Voracious Hydra, like Hydroid Crisis, and run that out. And you have Nissa too, which is still a very strong magic card. So I am into this archetype and I'm into Luca in particular. Using Luca with the Hydras is smart. Having Nissa as a backup plan to just cast your big creature is also pretty smart. And I guess, you know, like Leyline and the mana creatures do that too. I feel like I would probably just not have Leyline though. Is that bad? Cross my mind. No, it crossed my mind. I think that is defensible and you can go that route. I, because I was playing Nyx Bloom Ancient, I had to have Leyline, I think. But okay. there is a world where you can definitely go a different route from Nyx Bloom Ancient. This is this is coming from a person who did a lot of building around Kinnon, like the UG other right. Leyline. Yep. I don't know. I ended up going down that path a lot and was just like, this isn't even really that good, you know? No, it doesn't so. feel super strong to me. I mean, you could also do that here. Your mana gets really messy at that point, but you could look into that. Dude, you have Paradise Druid to fix? Stuff. Who cares? Yeah, you do. You also have the, the carry added, which also makes mana of any color. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be playing that card or not. Like maybe there's just a better option. Like you're supposed to play Leafkin Druid, but I liked having the fixing and it seemed important to me. So you got you got sources of blue. They're there. Well, it's also nice. You, know, you hit six mana, right? You're like, ah, oh, Crisis for four, draw a couple cards. And then next turn, you're... Karyatid actually just scales into Crisis plus two instead of Crisis plus one. Right. So I, I like that. I think the Karyatid is just fine and like probably a, a still fairly underrated card. Like obviously Paradise Druid is probably the best because it just ensures that your mana creature lives for a turn under most circumstances. But the Karyatid, if it gets to live, is super powerful and it's not that much worse than like Leafkin Druid or, you know, whatever other random dork is around. Yeah, at least when this is your plan, like when your setup is this linear and this right. obvious, yeah. then it makes a lot of sense to me. Dude, build for power, build for speed. Let's go. That's how you do it on day one. Yeah. All right, my number eight, Yadaro, Wandering Monster, 5RR88, Legendary Creature, Dinosaur Turtle, Trample, Haste, Cycling 1R. When you cycle this, shuffle it into your library from your graveyard. If you've cycled a card named Yadaro four or more times this game, put it onto the battlefield from your graveyard instead. This is a compact win condition, and I'm a pretty big fan of those. Can can I give the listeners the inside baseball behind this card and the fact that this is probably the reason why we have this bizarre split format? Because when you brought your first top 10 list to me, where was this card, Gerald? Number one. Number one. 
it was no, it was nowhere on my list, and I spent most of yesterday being pretty underwhelmed by it. But Listen. we talked, we talked, and you did a good job, and you brought forth an obvious, obvious place for this that I did not think about, where it is unquestionably good. So I will let you explain that to the listeners, and you'll get them on board with you. Teamer wreck. Teamer wreck uh, is generally pretty good, at least in game one scenarios of sticking wilderness reclamation. Casting explosion for a medium amount, using those resources to get some stuff that helps buy you turn buy you time, like buy you a turn or two. And then on the next turn, you have like another reclamation, another explosion, you kill your opponent, right? Mm. However, we are in a world where things like Ether Gust are going to be main deckable. There are some new cards in the set that also disrupt your game plan a little bit. So it is entirely possible that. Things like Wilderness Reclamation are not as untouchable as they used to be. You know, like generally you would just play it and get your untapped step and it would basically be free. They wouldn't be able to kill it. They won't be able to counter it. Not a lot of decks had that sort of interaction and that's not the case anymore. So you can't really lean on Expansion Explosion as much. But even if you're in the scenario where your Reclamation is living and you're doing your team or rec thing, you see a ton of cards every game, every turn, and just like two mana to cycle a card is very low opportunity cost. And the fact that this allows you to do things like transform in sideboard games where like we played the Azorius Control versus Team Wreck matchup, right? Like how, how much would this card have changed the matchup? It would have been huge. Yeah, it would have mattered a bunch. So, okay, they load up on Disenchance and now you just kill their stuff, draw some cards, cycle some Yadaros, and that's that's just it. Like they're they're gonna die really quick, and you don't even need to resolve an expansion explosion. You convinced me of its slot there. I, I still, if I would have had this card anywhere on a top ten, it would have been certainly towards the bottom. I, I still don't think it quite makes the cut for me because there's enough other splashy stuff that really does. I also did like this card in Unpredictable Cyclone. That deck is fine. I built it a little bit differently than most people did, and was Better. pretty impressed you by mean- it. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not registering for a tournament, so I'm not 100% convinced on it. But I built it in such a way where, like, if you cycle an instant, you have a very good chance of getting a counter spell. If you cycle a sorcery, you have a very good chance of getting a wrath. If you cycle Yudaro, you just get Yudaro. That's the only thing that's coming back. And a lot of people were trying to hit, like, ultimatums and stuff like that. I am not sure that's great, quite the correct way to go. It's just basically a Jeskai control deck. Uh, with some counter magic to fairies. I had a Narset in my list, Shark Typhoon. So I really had a very bifurcated game plan where I could just play traditional control and eventually kill you with a big dumb Yodaro or my Shark Typhoon. And it was pretty good. I, I was into it. And Yodaro in particular impressed there. So I liked it there. I played against it a bunch from other people and it was continually underwhelming and they just wasted turns cycling Yodaro and never got close to actually having it come into play. And then it would come into play and it would be so late that it wouldn't matter. So I probably had my opinion tilted a little bit on the card further in the negative direction than I should have by other people's experiences. There is a way to build around this and find success. I think you have brought forth the clearest one, but I do think the unpredictable Cyclone decks can be better than the first versions we saw and maybe pretty good, but they have the same problem as everything else with Ether Gust, and it doesn't have the same good fail state for unpredictable Cyclone, although it does cycle. So if you're playing just traditional control, it's nice to have that juke where you can just get a fresh card. Yeah. Uh, think about how many cards the average deck sees per game, right? It's like 
15 to 20 or something, maybe. Mm-hmm. And in that instance, Yadaro is not, it's not going to happen, right? But Team Wreck is certainly the one deck in the format that does the best job of like, all right, I'm going to Grow Spiral, I'm going to Uro, I'm going to Thos's Intervention. Like they, they get to go through almost the entirety of their deck if the game goes on long enough. So you're going to be able to find four Yudaros, if not more. And I think for most decks, like, you know, random Jeskai deck or whatever, you're just not going to see enough cards for it to matter. Or at least you should play additional filtering type of stuff so that you can find more Yudaros and actually make sure that you actually get the count up to four. But Team Wreck is the one deck where I see this card and I'm just like, yep, this is it. Like this, this is a slam dunk. It goes in the deck. You play four because you want to cycle as many of them as possible. And it actually fixes a lot of problems that the deck had. Good stuff. Your eight. Let's do a package deal. And I am going to split up this package. We'll talk more about packages in our combined top five where we didn't split them up. But these cards, I think, are unique enough that I had to talk about each of them individually. I, of course, am talking about the companions, in particular, the ones that would have made my total top 10 list including some spots in the top five are Urian. That's the blue white companion Gairuda. That's the blue black companion and Amori. That's the black green companion. Do we want to read all of them? I, I guess we should, right? Make it easier for the people. Although, you know, a lot of that was people who were driving in their cars and listening to our podcast way less of that these days, but true. We'll still go but through it. I think, I some, think it's important some t- sometimes on. you're doing the dishes, man, you know, like okay. you're not always at a computer. Good point. Let me give you Garuda Doom of Depths. This is four colorless and then two hybrid mana where hybrid is blue and black. Legendary creature, Demon Kraken, Companion. Your starting deck contains only cards with even converted mana costs. When Garuda enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. Just learned this effect. Affected both players yesterday when I cast it for the first time. (laughs) Put a creature with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. Next up, we'll do the black green command or black green companion. This is Amari the Collector. Two colorless, two hybrid, where hybrid is black green. Legendary creature ooze companion. Each non-land card in your starting deck shares a card type. As Amori the Collector enters the battlefield, choose a card type. Spells you cast of the chosen type cost one less to cast. And finally, the blue-white companion. This is Yuri and Sky Nomad. Three colorless, two hybrid, where hybrid is white-blue. Companion, your starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than the minimum deck size. Flying, when Urian enters the battlefield, exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control. Return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. And that is a 4-5, just like Umari, whose power and toughness I think I skipped. These cards are incredible. And again, if there was a impetus for you and I splitting our top 10 list, it is because you would have had no companions on your top 10 list. And after my experience playing yesterday, that seems crazy to me. Let's start with, I, I guess I'll go in the order I perceive them. Urian has probably the biggest restriction out of all of these cards. I also think when you build around it, its impact might be the greatest. It is very easy for this to just be a five mana, four or five flyer that draws you three cards maybe four cards, maybe has more impact than that. Maybe it resets your Planeswalkers. Maybe it just wins you the game on the spot. There are decks that I'm starting to build that just play Urian 
in the main deck. I think it's just a fine card in a lot of scenarios where you don't even have to go down the route of companion. And the drawback of playing 80 cards is not the same as it used to be. There are some factors that will routinely have you considering playing 80 cards. Now, I think modern is where you get real buffs from considering 80 cards. In standard, it's more just that the cost isn't as large as it used to be. There is still mostly cost there, and that's what has me a little bit lower on Urian than the other companions. But if you have cast this card and gotten like the two or three card benefit from it, and then just had this incredible body sitting behind, you know just how good this can be. Jerry, did you see any of this in action yesterday? A little bit. I also built some decks on my own, like you know, you have Omen of the Sea, Narset, Oath of Kaya, stuff like that. That's all very appealing. Well, I, I actually haven't even included Narset in my Uri Index yet, which is probably just an oversight on my part. I hadn't thought about resetting there. I've thought a lot about like resetting Teferi, which is fine, but resetting Narset seems even more impactful. Uh, I'll also point to things like Golden Egg, which yep. I was building with Abundant Growth for a little while. I guess it's not Abundant Growth. It's the other one. Urban Utop- something. Urban Utopia. Urban Utopia, thank you. Abundant Growth is one mana. Urban Utopia is two mana. Uh, When it enters the battlefield, draw a card, and then you can tap the land at enchants for any mana. That's fine, but I was also building some like escape protocol decks, and that can only target creatures and artifacts. So I actually went to Golden Egg after a while, but it's pretty easy to make sure this card does a lot for you upon entering the battlefield. And you don't have to cast it on turn five. You can just wait until it actually is very impactful. The body was so, so important for pressuring opposing Planeswalkers. I just walked away very impressed by the impact of this card on the game. And I want to build many, many more decks around it. That's how good it was. Have you played any post-board games? No, those were not available to me. It's, it, it changes things. It does. When... I, look, sideboard cards matter a lot, and you're going to get a lot less access to them because you are playing with an 80-card deck. Right, and... For Esper, especially if you're going like the golden egg route or you have a bunch of filtering and stuff, it might not matter as much. Like Esper has a lot of playable cards to where you can build an 80 card deck and not feel like you're skimping on quality all that much. But one Mm -hmm. of the things that does matter is the mana and you're forced to fill out your mana base with either a lot of basics or ETB tap lands and you don't get to draw a shock land as often. So like your mana is also going to be significantly worse but again slower deck like esper maybe doesn't matter yeah i think maybe getting like the eight cycling lands that com- float across your two colors can be good enough to negate Ugh. that no i, I like the triomes in that spot i think i think it's fine especially for a slower deck like that uh you'll have to plan around it and you'll have to have the metagame break in such a way that that's reliable right now aggression is mostly not a thing there are some cards coming up that maybe will change that but I, I haven't considered that yet, and it's a fair criticism of the card. So why don't I move on to a next uncriticizable card in Garuda, Doom of Depths. Yes. Have you have you copied this card with a spark double yet? Not yet. What a world. Oh, it feels so good. And then you're just going back into your deck. God forbid you do something like, uh, what, what is the Lord? This is, this the is it, it's Sun Titan Phantasmal Image. You know, it's, it is gas. Yeah, it's incredible, and it's very easy to set up, and it can just win the game in some instances where you just mill your opponent out on the spot. I had it happen yesterday, and I started calling my deck Sultai uh, Combo, 
because you you just play this and you have a Yarrick the Desecrated in play and now you're eight cards deep and you find your copy cards or you find- Whoa, 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 whoa. This is under the guise of it being a companion, my friend. How do you have a Yarrick? No, no, no. This is a ranking of the card. It doesn't have to be a companion. And my deck just has four Gyruda because the card is that good that you can just play it straight up. And in fact, my companion in that deck is Umari because now my deck is just all creatures- and I get a discount on my Garuda, which has been pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, what have you have you actually companioned this thing? Have you built decks around that? I have. It, it's weird in that slot, I will say, because then it tends to be very restrictive. And I it's good enough that you want to build around it. But thankfully, you can just play three more copies in the main deck. The problem I've had doing the spark double stuff there is that it's not going to win on its own. When you get the five mana cards, it's very easy to just make that a lethal combo. But you still have like Thassa, Spark Double, Garuda, and it's very easy to just generate huge battlefields. I haven't quite cemented what the rest of the plan is supposed to look like, and maybe that'll get sussed out as time goes on. But when you just put the card on the battlefield and realize you can blink it and get multiple instances of this trigger, you'll buy into it very quickly. It is powerful on its face. And that inspires me to push the boundaries of what this card can do and try more and more configurations. Yeah, there are things like Team of Wreck where it's like, oh, you put a bunch of power on the battlefield, now I'm going to kill you. It doesn't really seem that impressive, but it does basically do the thing that Fires does well, which is like, here's 10 power. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're also just like generating a decent amount of value. I don't know if you're, uh, I guess in your... Umori deck, you weren't playing this or whatever, but like you can play Corpse Churn too. So it's just like you you have options for, you know, basically just casting a Garuda on, on every turn. So like even if you get board swept a bunch and you're getting like some value in the meantime with whatever you return and everything. So this, this card is very strong. It's very powerful. Blood for Bones is another card, which is thankfully even. And I was super high on for a period. I think there's probably something you can do with that card and Garuda. So I had like a Fiend Artisan, Blood for Bones, Garuda setup that I was working on that I haven't quite figured out yet. But there's a lot of stuff to look at with this card. And I talked a little bit yesterday about this set. I I don't know what its ultimate impact on standard is going to be, but as a deck builder, it's been excellent. I've really appreciated the paths it's brought me down, and I've had a lot of fun in the deck building period. Yeah, so... I kind of want to write this article uh, that's, you know, the top 10 Ikoria cards for Pioneer, but that would have me go down such a deep rabbit hole, like, especially with like all the companions and stuff. It's like, it's already super deep for standard. And I am very, very much looking forward to seeing the impact it has on something like Pioneer. I just don't know that I can do that work while also trying to focus on standard, you know? Sure. That's a lot to cover. but yeah, I think I think it's going to be really impactful there too. Well, I want you to write that article. I want to hear about it. Let me wrap up my spiel. Last one, Umori. I talked about it a little bit in the context of just like enabling a Garuda combo deck. You actually had the coolest Umori deck I saw in Hell the preview yeah. period. It was Umori, except the default with this card, right, is going to be just fill your deck with creatures. And I think that's fine. There's a lot of good decks in standard that can do that because of the way creatures are created presently. Like They're all spells. I, yeah, they're all spells. I built mono black and I still have access to Murderous Rider. And I just have an Amori in my sideboard. And it's fine. It's great. I completely appreciated it there. What you did was really interesting. You focused on artifacts as opposed to creatures. And 
your deck kind of just goes off like discounted mystic forge free ginger brutes one mana steel overseers and this deck is also available over on arena decklist.gg this was one of the coolest takes i saw on this card and it really opened my eyes up to the possibility of what you can do if this card is netting you two or three mana on a turn it pays for itself very quickly and when you combine the fact that it's going to be the eighth card in your hand and it's just a four or five for four mana. And a lot of times in the decks that are using Omari, you'll probably be playing something like Paradise Druid or Boreal Grazer and turn three, four or five. That's good. You're going to sign up for that in most instances. You've already started aggression. They must kill it. And that opens the door for your other must kill threats. And you haven't actually lost a card in hand. So of all these companions, I was actually most impressed with Umori yesterday. I don't know if that's going to hold as we develop these decks, but it's the easiest one to maximize right now and you can get up to some really really powerful shenanigans with this card yeah all the creatures are spells and a lot of them come tacked on with various forms of card advantage and everything so it's really tough for you to actually run out of gas and with artifacts there is a decent engine in place with like uh mystic forge uh arcanist owl to find it obviously that doesn't get discounted by mori or whatever but it helps set up kind of like your combo and then there's things like the Great Henge. You have Golden Egg to get uh, like more rebuys with Mystic Forge and like clear off the top of your deck and everything. So Umori, for it to be good, you like if you play it on turn three or turn four, you untap and you dump your hand. That's good and everything. But what you really want to do is continually get value from the Umori, right? Mm-hmm. And I think artifacts have enough engine type things that allow you to do that. So yeah, I started with a little bit of a beatdown base and then wanted to have some ways to kind of go over the top in the mid to late game. And there might be a better version of that deck uh, that is more just like combo focused, but like a lot of the decent artifacts actually rotated. So that in pioneer might be something worth looking into because, yeah. you know, th- then you have like some mana rocks or like even historic, right? Cause you, you have like power stone shard and, Stuff like that, just like the the flood of tears decks that Matt Nass was building around last season, kind of like that. Except you just full on combo people instead of doing stupid blue things. Discounts a big deal, and it's rare that you see one attached to such an efficient body, and it's unprecedented that you have access to the card anytime you want it. So there's still a lot of exploring to do with Amari, but just in terms of playing a deck and being like, "Wow, that was very very powerful." I think that this is the one that checked the boxes hardest for me in the preview period. And everything's the Wild West in the preview period. I get that. Still hard not to be impressed. Right. My number seven, General Kudro of Dranith. One dub B, three, three, legendary creature, human soldier. Other humans you control get plus one, plus one. And that alone would kind of be enough, you know? But... Whenever this or another human enters the battlefield under your control, exile target card from an opponent's graveyard, and you can pay two mana, sacrifice two humans, destroy target creature with power four or greater. This thing just completely decimates Uro. You get into these board stalls where you play some smaller creatures, they stabilize with a big one, like a Cavalier of Thorns or something, and this thing help, helps you clear the way. Like, this card is nice. This, like, this, this is definitely a modern playable card. Oh, yeah. I think this is a huge upgrade for modern humans, and I'm interested in it in standard as well. You mentioning Whisper Squad as a human kind of unlocked a lot of things for me because now I want to explore 
black, white humans, but not as an aggressive deck, which is what I thought we were going to have to do. And then I kind of doubted its prospects at success. But if you can build it a little bit more grindier, then I start getting excited about it. And I, I looked at it and I'm not a huge fan. Uh, just like a lot of the payoffs for the grindy type stuff are not humans. So it's a little okay. awkward, but okay. priest forgotten gods is a human hunted witness right. is a human right. uh, garrison cat makes a human and the bastion of remembrance like makes a human. And so like, sure. that was, that was one of the decks that I started building this morning, but like I came up a little short on cards. Okay. Well, at the very least we can keep an eye on it for the future. Any other humans will certainly only scale this card up, but I think you're right in a space like modern where all the humans are already there. It's a slam dunk. What do you have that you're excited about for General Kudra then? Is it just a more stock aggressive approach to black white? I think Mardu is pretty easy to make happen. Uh, I like all, basically all the knights are humans except for like corpse knight or whatever. Hmm. So you can play inspiring veteran and Kudro and, have two different lords. You, that also means you get tournament grounds, which is way better than the triumph for fixing your mana. And yeah, you just have this shell of like, you know, 12 one drops, 12 two drops. You have Kudro and then like Judith as another pseudo lord. Tajik is a good threat. You have dire tactics as a removal spell. Embercleave as a way to get through. You have a decent amount of multicolored cards. So hero precinct one matters. That makes humans, which get buffed by Kudro, Worthy Knight makes humans. And then the the thing I like about Mardu specifically is General's Enforcer, which is a two drop that makes your legendary creatures have indestructible or your legendary right. humans have indestructible. So you curve Enforcer into something like Judith or Tajik and, or even Kudro, and your opponent's just like, well, crap. You know, like I, I could kill one of these things and now I just have to kill your stupid two drop and you get to keep your powerful three drop. But that deck certainly has like some mana issues and you have targets for things like ether gust. Whereas I think white black by itself has enough cards where instead of playing the, the fancy red legendaries at three mana, you just play like Gideon and you still have dire tactics and a pretty good mana curve and you don't get tagged by ether gust, which it, it, it just might, might be one of the reasons why you actually see churn in the format instead of playing like two or three Ether Gust main deck or Mystical Dispute main deck, people might be forced to tone that down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think there has to be an option like that that, that punishes people for maxing these cards because otherwise this format will get out of control real quickly. It'll narrow real quickly. So I hope that you were right that this deck can compete on that level. It's just so powerful. It does so much, you know, like imagine, imagine having, you know, Kudro against fires, right? Like they can't ever stabilize behind big creatures. Imagine mm -hmm. having this after your opponent plays an Uro, right? Like they just have a bunch of wind taken out of their sails. So this, this card just does so much more than just be a three mana Lord. And you're going to, you're going to be surprised for sure. Cool. Look forward to it. You're seven. Nope, I did. I did my eight seventy six, oh, sir. Damn it! You get to talk for a while now. Ah, oh, man. All right, my number six is Heartless Act. One B instant. Choose one. Destroy target creature with no counters on it, or remove up to three counters from target creature. As of today, I have not used the second ability. I don't know if anyone ever saw that happen. I imagine it's like kind of sad times, but whatever. And. 
I don't know, man. Leading up to this, we talked about just spot removal in general. You weren't super high on it. Now you're talking about decks that have like 36 creatures in them. So yeah. how you feeling now? Uh, I feel that if these decks are good, then they'll have to be a reaction. And the Heartless Act is the best of them. Uh, I wrote about this card in Modern, where I also think it's very meaningful. This just covers a huge amount of creatures. I leave it to you, Gerald, to bring up these obvious cards that have immediate impact, that are just good, efficient spells. We don't get as many of them these days, it feels like. It feels like we just get insano, huge ridiculous effects on the battlefield and not so much oh a good spot removal piece but it's here you certainly have to account for it it'll see play it's not very exciting next i i just think of myself as like you know a repair guy with a tool belt and i think you never know what kind of job you're going to have to do and you want to make sure that you have the right tool for the job. So I just like having as many tools in my tool belt as possible. This opens up new avenues where we actually have a good two mana removal spell that doesn't have these weirdo limitations like the devotion to black one or tyrant scorn, you know, needing additional colors and stuff like that. Like now we just have this thing that we can use if we want it. And that is great. I appreciated it when I was building my mono black decks. Yeah, yeah. And for one of the decks that I'll talk about later, uh, this this card kind of comes in clutch. I have to ask, since you brought up the toolbox, do you own any actual tools? Like, do you actually have a big tool collection so you're prepared for all the scenarios you might face? Well, so for magic, I know that I'm going to end up facing a lot of things. And okay. for, for me doing like the preparation and the learning, like we did the unlock episode, right? And it's like that same sort of thing where it's like, well, I know that a screwdriver exists, but I don't know what other tools exist. So like every job I have to do with this screwdriver, and then it's like, oh, you find out that like a drill exists and you're like, oh, that makes things a lot easier. Oh, there's a hammer. Okay, yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. And for magic, I like having all that knowledge so that when a problem arises, I can I can pick the best tool for it, right? Sure. But- in real life, I do have a, a, a tool case, you know, with a bunch of different stuff in it. I use it very rarely. However, the times where it has come up, it's been like, man, I'm so smart for buying this tool case, you know? Uh, when you get to use a very specialized tool that like you probably shouldn't have, but for whatever reason you do, there's nothing that feels better. It's just like, I have the perfect thing for this. Yeah, you just pull some fancy crap out of your playbook, right? And it's, it's, yeah. it's the one percenter, but the fact that you had it means that you had the option to do it versus not. Now, granted, I can't think of any instance that I've ever actually achieved this goal of having the obscure tool for the right situation, but one day it's coming. I'm sure the tools I have in my possession will eventually pay me back with the tremendous reward of having the perfect tool for the obscure situation. Well, it's happened before where it's like, oh, I just have this one size fits all screwdriver, like my roommate or whatever. And I'm just like, well, I have this, you know, 20 slaughter thing. And they're like, oh, cool. And, or they're just like, they, they hang a picture and it's crooked. And I'm just like, yo, take this level. And they're just like, yes. oh yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So it's like, I am surrounded by other people who are doing the, those things. And then I get to provide tools for them. That's cool. Uh, I just don't end up using them myself necessarily. Although I do have like three boxes of dope artwork 
that I have framed and I haven't hung up yet. So I might have to bust out that level here pretty soon. There you go. Time for tools. And I want to get my VR thing set up, which involves like drilling some, they're called base stations into my ceiling so that they can like cover the area that you play in and stuff. And I, I don't think I have a drill, so I might have to like screwdriver them in. So it's like, dude, I'm, I'm short a tool. This is so bad. That's a lot of work for VR to have to drill have into you, your house. Have you time. played Beat Saber? Have you played uh, it? Yes, I have. Cause... I have the the new Oculus, which has no towers whatsoever. It just uses positional cameras to do that Ooh. locating. Yeah. Dude, that's nice. It is nice. Yeah. I, I upgraded specifically for that reason because I had wires like running around my room. I had the original Oculus, which had like the towers that placed you in the field of movement. And I was just sick of the wires. So I gave that to my brother and got the one without the wires. And it is a significant upgrade. And I even have like, just the way my office is set up, there's like, uh, I guess it's a curtain rod, but there's no curtains on it over the top of my desk area. And I can run the cable up over it. So the cable is even elevated off of me while I'm playing VR. It's really good. Dude, that is nice. Yeah. I was just going to do it in my living room because I have I have the space for it. But I, I also have to stop being lazy. So... We can do episodes of the podcast in VR. All five people who have VR come <laughs> join us. I, I bought a VR setup with the hopes that like my roommates would enjoy it. I went to a friend of mine's place and they had it and I got to play Beat Saber. I'm just like, this is rad and everyone is going to like this. And then they kind of did. They, they played with it like twice, you know, and then just never again. So. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of like showpiece vibes to it where it's very hard to do a ton of gaming in VR because you are like it is very effective at what it does, but you're so isolated in like in another world. And of course, there's like VR sickness and things like that, that a lot of people deal with. So I find I mostly use it when people come over and want to try it out. That's the main use my VR setup gets at this point. Although new you never have game, people come over. That's true. Uh, so it definitely has a little bit of dust on it now. The new Half-Life game came out only for VR. I have it. I haven't played it yet, though. It's a little bit too high stress for me, given everything that was going on. Yeah. But I do want to cross that one off. Fair enough. What were we talking about? Were we here to do a magic podcast or something? At some point. Uh, we can get into our consensus top five now. Yeah, this is cool. Like, like we said, I'm not 100 percent convinced these are the best cards in the set but they are the ones that we both believe will have huge impact on the format and see large amounts of play with things given all the ether gust nonsense aside even with ether gust these are good cards they're going to be in the mix yep uh so number five kind of cheating because it's very obvious these are the the triomes they are lands that etb tapped tap for one of three colors where one of the color like the colors are respective of their wedge they have the basic land types of that wedge and they have cycling for three mana. Brian, triomes or temples in a two color deck? Depends on the situation, but there's been a lot of times where I've looked for splits as opposed to the temples. And I, I do think it's correct. If you have a bunch of castles and you want to make sure those come into play untapped, it's important. If you benefit from the cycling and have large amounts of mana in the late game, I can see the benefit of Triome. So it's not just obvious temples at this point. I think you have to think about this very carefully and there'll be circumstances that go both ways. Cycling three is a lot, but then if you have any way to get paid off for that, I think it is very helpful. And for, for so for a deck like Team of Reclamation, right? Like the temples are, are very helpful there because 
you're you're kind of a slow deck. You're going to be doing some setup. You're going to play things like Grow Spiral and Uro. They're going to put lands into play. And that extra land is generally going to be a tap land or like an island to cast an opt or something. But most of the time, you're not going to care if it's a tap land. And then at that point, you would just like to get the scry out of it, right? So right. the temples, temples do make sense there. But also Team Erek, like I said, draws a lot of cards or at least like sees a big portion of its deck and does have a real flooding problem. And if you do draw like, you know, two temples in a row or whatever, like it's it's just really bad for you and your engine is just kind of shut off. Whereas if some of those had cycling, then you could continually digging through your deck and uh, find things like Thassa's Intervention or Expansion Explosion and just keep going. So in a deck like that, I've really liked the Triomes. There are some other decks where, you know, you don't necessarily plan on having the mana available to you. I think like any two color deck with like a relatively low mana curve, I'm thinking, you know, like the Orzhov Humans deck that we're talking about, I would much rather right. just have the temples, like get, get the, the one shot scry early. And then, yeah, if you draw a temple late, it kind of stinks. But like if you spent your turn cycling, how much would that actually help you? Probably not a whole lot. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of doing the math required to figure out which one of these cards you're supposed to play. And answer is not always going to be immediately obvious. Stop and think about it. Figure out what your deck is actually trying to do, and then you'll reach the right decision. Yeah, also for Team of Rec, I mean, you get a Team or Triome, right? So it- Three color lands, it's it's not really a choice in my opinion. Like you just, you jam the three colors and you're happy you're on color. I think there are instances where you have a base two color deck that's like splashing a smaller thing and you don't necessarily need the tri land to get by. So if you have a lot of those same characteristics uh, of like the Orsov deck, for example, it's like, yeah, maybe you still just play temples, you know, and you get your third color some other way. But for Team Erek, where it's like you would have like Uro and Storm's Wrath in your deck, it's like, eh, you should, you know, probably want the actual mana fixing. So yeah, it, it depends. I mean, this we, we could probably do an entire podcast like breaking down different decks and how many triomes versus temples they should have and stuff like that. And I think that that would be kind of interesting. It might be like boring, you know, like watching paint dry or whatever, but... It would be but, our least le- listened to episode of all time, but the people who appreciate it would really appreciate it. Yeah, there'd be like 10 people that are just like, yo, this is the best stuff ever. Yep. Our number four is Vivian Monsters Advocate. 3GG, Legendary Planeswalker Vivian, Loyalty 3, got some static abilities. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may cast creature spells from the top of your library. Plus one, create a 3-3 green beast creature token. Put your choice of a Vigilance, Reach, or Trample counter on it. Minus two, when you cast your next creature spell this turn, Search your library for a creature card with lesser CMC. Put it onto the battlefield and shuffle your library. This is pretty nice. Like, it's got an engine on it no matter what. You can get a 3-3 out of it. And then just at some point, if you have a really good opportunity for the minus two, which is also kind of tight because it resets the top card of your library. So if you have, like, spare mana, you can also do other stuff. You get some value out of it. The, The best thing I've found with this is Edgewall Innkeeper because yep. almost no matter what, with the minus two, you're going to get it. And it's just like the most impactful one drop that you can possibly have. Here's a question for you. Can you cast the adventure side of a creature off the top of your library? I would assume no. Uh, so they, they changed the wording on these 
I think Vivian's is updated. So like, yeah, you may cast creature spells from the top of your library. It's just like you have to cast them as creatures. Makes sense. Regardless, I think Vivian is powerful. I think it competes with Nyssa, which is going to be the huge problem with Vivian and Standard for the entirety both. of the time. Both those cards playing both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can find setups where that makes perfect sense. I- I'm not trying to naysay this card because it's base operating procedures are so, so powerful. And I actually think this has a even better home in modern where there's a ton of creature combo that has historically folded to removal. Vivian is the best possible answer you could find to those scenarios. So this is going to be a big hit in modern, but in standard, I I do think there's a little squeeze. You can play them both, like you said, but if you're just playing this as like a fair card, if you're just trying to enable typical whatever blue base simic strategies that we've seen dominate standard for what feels like an eternity now typical uro things into hydroid crisis this card's going to leverage huge dividends all over the place and it does a great job of playing both sides of the game plan which those decks are all about you want to have the aggressive edge to you but you also need answers in some scenarios and vivian's going to provide those in spades so yeah, really like this card vivian's minus two opens up a lot of different toolbox aspects too where it's like you get to play a thrashing brontodon and just not care and that is excellent so i don't know thinking about this i'm not actually sure i think that says since it says creature spells Spells. that you have to if it said creature cards you would be safe right yes if it said creature card you could then cast the creature card as an adventure i believe um that's the way i am choosing to read it as well although as with many things in icoria i'm just guessing and i actually have no idea because there's no question this is the most complicated set we've seen probably ever right in a minute in a minute yeah i i I can't even name one that's like close time spiral or future site is what everyone always comes up with yeah that seems infinitely more simple than what we've gone through here (laughs) i don't know man you put like 20 mechanics in a set and it's kind of kind of bananas Yeah, but they were all bad. All these cards are pushed to the moon and they still have these complicated mechanics. True. So you have to know how all of these cards work, basically. Yes. All right, number three, we are cheating a little bit. Uh, This is basically a blue package of cards because some of these go in the same decks and enable those decks, but they might also go in different decks. So the three cards that we're talking about are Lord Dracus. Sea Dasher Octopus and Slither Wisp. So Lord Dracus is one UR, two, three creature, lizard beast, mutate for HH, where H is a blue or a red mana. Whenever this creature mutates, return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. I know that you were working on mono blue shells. I also know that you were fog locking people with this for whatever the hell reason. Mm-hmm. But I also think that this is just completely reasonable in uh, aggressive red shells that have some amount of interaction. Obviously the spells that you get back are not as powerful, but like this, uh, I guess like Sprite Dragon kind of falls under this category too, but like Lord Dracus in a deck with Sprite Dragon, Terramander, and a bunch of interaction seems quite good to me. The fact that you have Sea Dasher Octopus as another cheap mutate creature to like double up on this sort of effect is also very powerful. Lord Dracus, are you higher or lower on this card since it was initially previewed? I don't, I honestly don't know how to answer that. I only played the blue deck for a little while during my time yesterday, and I nobody played a Lord Dracus against me all day, and I didn't really see... I, I still don't think people are high on this card. When I played it, I was in a tough scenario, and my graveyard was not particularly loaded, so I had to just get an opt. It gave me a chance at a game I otherwise had no chance at, so 
I'm just dealing with a really small sample size thus far, but it, it does the things I thought it was supposed to do. And then you talked about the fog lock, like that was kind of a unique scenario where I was against your deck, your artifact based Umari deck, which had basically no outs to a Lord Dracus setup like that. Yep. Didn't play around it. Yeah. So those kind of infinite combos, I, I don't know how much it matters. It felt real. I mean, there was really nothing any opponent could have done to interact with me when I got to the point where I had like two unsummons in my hand. It was just anything they tried to do, I'd be able to respond to. So uh, I, I don't know if the format's going to be slow enough to leverage things like that. On the whole, it does exactly what I expected it to. It's just, does that line up with the rest of the format? And I don't feel like I have any better answers to that after one day. But re- recursive access to your graveyard that doesn't exile anything and you just have it over and over is exploitable bottom line it's just a question of do you have the tools to exploit it right and if you have ways to make random bodies like obviously this becomes a little bit better to you since you're not like all in on your good creature or whatever but as far as the graveyard being stocked thing like there are a lot of cards that just cycle for one mana that you could probably add a couple copies to Mm. Uh, in your decks for like very low opportunity costs. Like Gopher Blood is one that I've liked a lot. This is one uh, R sorcery. Your creature fights there, cycling for a generic mana. And then Boon of the Wishgiver is six mana sorcery draw four that cycles for one that you can play one as a top end pretty easily. So like Cards filling nice. out my deck. Yeah, filling out my deck with those for things like Terramander and Lord Dracus, it's like even even you take away just the fail case of you not having anything to return. Yeah, Terramander definitely deserves another look with these blue cards that we're talking about, this blue package. I think it kind of got an unfair run during its time in Standard, although it is a Pro Tour champion, should give it credit for that. Yep. But, but still, it hasn't had the impact I thought it was going to. These cycling cards maybe are enough to do so. Uh, second one, Sea Dasher Octopus, 1UU, 2-2, Creature Octopus, Mutate, 1U, Flash, whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. This is not quite Curious Obsession because you're not trying to go like one drop, immediately stick this on it, I don't think. You just do it whenever you have an opportunity to. And there are just a decent amount of times where you just like pass with Counterspell mana, they don't play anything. You're like, all right, run out Octopus. And if they don't kill it, they probably lose. That's the whole thing about this card is flexibility. And of this package, this is the card that 100% impressed me the most. You have access to Quench on key turns. And if they don't play anything, you just get to run out your Octopus. You have the three mana spots where you have Neutralize available or you get to run out your Octopus. And it becomes increasingly difficult for your opponents to play around your counter magic when you just get to punish them with an Octopus anytime they do nothing. And, and you already have reason snowballs from there. Right, right. There's so many spots and flexible things in the two to three mana range in blue decks and taking advantage of the flexibility is going to be how they claw their way back into the format they still have a mystical dispute problem but they have access to ether gust and i disagree with the dispute problem man you get you to play four disputes you get to play four disputes <laughs> okay okay so it's not so much a problem as it is an obligation i guess yeah but the, the reason everyone has dispute is that it's busted against everyone else Right. So you get to be a low to the ground tempo deck that takes advantage of Aether Gust and Mystical Dispute, which are cards that reward you for being a tempo deck. No, that's very true. And that is the that is why the blue cards get such a high rating on our combined list, I think, is because that strategy plays so well with the constraints of the format that we're presently dealing with. Yes. And last card is Slither Wisp. 
This is UBB32 Creature Elemental Nightmare. Ooh, did you notice it was an elemental? I don't think we're going to do anything with that, though. But uh, it has flash, and whenever you cast another spell with flash, you draw a card and each opponent loses one life. I, I literally even played with this card, and I thought I thought you lost a life up until now, up until I just read it for like the 10th time. <laughs> Like I said, a lot of text on all these cards. I fault nobody for not knowing everything they all do. There are strikes against this card. It is three mana. It's a three, two body. The mana is tough. Most of these decks, you would want to lean on blue rather than black, but that is doable. And you need to play cards that are specifically flash, unlike Brineborn Cutthroat, which is just like play spells on your opponent's turn. So like you can play Counterspell or Opt or whatever. But... There are a lot of pretty reasonable flashcards, including Cutthroat, the Octopus, Spectral Sailor is another good one. The Omens are fine, both the blue and black one. This card is is just a very, very good engine in very good win condition. It just goes off. It really does. And it pulls you ahead very quickly. I saw a lot of this card in play, mostly not over the moon about it, but... I think people were building their decks wrong, and you and I have a particular card that we were both very low on, which everyone just jammed four copies of into their deck. Cunning Night Bonder. That's oh, hybrid, hybrid, yuck. blue, black, blue, black, flash spells you spells with flash you cast, costs one less to cast, and can't be countered. I know it says the word flash on it a lot. This doesn't strike me as a particularly good magic card for your main deck sideboard. It's fine. I have a couple copies in my sideboard, but it, I don't it know. It kind of solves the dispute problem. Yeah. That, I think that's the best purpose for it, but I don't know what we're doing with it in our main decks, thinking it's going to be particularly good cardboard. There are way better options than this. Octopus is obviously a huge part of this, but Brazen Borrower is an incredible magic card. Yes. Uh, I, I think Spectral Sailor is going underappreciated right now, and I'm not really sure why, because again, the flexibility matters, and you want one drops for your Sea Dash or Octopus, so I want to see more Spectral Sailors right now. There's Voracious Great Shark, which is expensive, but that's... A big body, and that's something that matters for these tempo decks, being able to close the game very quickly. Brian, so can look at that. Brian, last don't, week I said I said no sharks. Don't trash How, the shark. Don't however, do it. however, I have one shark in my deck list currently. There you go. One shark in my deck list as well. So I will Damn allow it. it. And God. you mentioned Omen of the Sea. Uh, that's obviously the ideal card to combine with Slither Wisp. So th- there's good I mean, stuff here for sure. Let's be honest. Omen of the Sea is not very good. I just don't know if I buy that anymore. Like that's where I started, (laughs) but like I am routinely impressed by what Omen of the Sea does in all of my decks and it makes it into more and more decks. And it used to be begrudgingly. And now I'm just like, yeah, Omen of the Sea. Great. Let's go. Eh, I just feel like formats are too fast, but it was fine. It was fine when I played it. Uh, I have two sailors and two omens right now. Maybe I should just have all four sailors and like another octopus or something. Cause I have like two octopus. But oh, max those octopi. That's that's nah, the game man. plan right there. Dude, all octopi don't, all the time. You don't have enough creatures. For a deck like blue-red, I think that's fine because you just want an engine. So you just clear the way for the octopus. But for blue-black, you have Slither Wisp and you don't want to overload on that free drop slot of just okay, like, oh, okay. I have a million engine cards. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I, I think the power level of Octopus is high enough that like I am incentivized to make those concessions to maximize this card. I think it is that good. But... We'll see. Maybe Slitherwith, I can say the same thing about, and I just maximize that card instead, and I end up further ahead in the equation. And black is nice in that you get things like Drown in the Lock, 
uh, in small copies. You don't want to play a million of them and things like Heartless Act. So Heartless Act, yeah. Yeah, you actually have cheap interaction in these flash decks, whereas, uh, for example, like Simic Flash, right? Like if your opponent played a one drop, a lot of the time you just lost, you know, because you, you wouldn't be able to remove it and stabilize in time. And Black just has a lot more removal. You have better sideboard options. Uh, you're already going to need like BB available to you early. So you have good sideboard options uh, with, you know, Cry of the Carnarium and stuff like that if you want it. And in order to cast things like Slither Wisp and uh, Neutralize or Sinister Sabotage, I have four temples and two triomes and that's been fine. Yeah, I'm 4-3 right now. So yeah, it's it's not ideal, but it's fine. What's your castle count look like? I have, I started with two Lockthwains. I think I cut one. Okay. But the, yeah, the, the Triumphs enabling the castles helps a lot. Yeah. I, I am heavier on castles and I think that's why I was ready, willing to go another Triumph. But it is a big cost in a deck like this. Like having access to your mana, especially on the first few turns, very important. Yeah. You, you kind of want to curve out as far as like having a counter spell on turn two and you yep. definitely want three mana untapped on turn three for like Borrower, Slither, Wisp, Octopus, etc. Yeah. If I have a knock against this strategy right now, it, it is the mana. Like it's the hardest part to get right. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, even if it comes down to like, I'll just play an extra land. I think I'm fine with that. Yeah. On to number two, another little package, Gem Razor and Wilt. These are basically low opportunity cost disenchants. Uh, Gem Razor is... 3G for a 4-4 creature beast. Mutate 1GG. Reach, trample. Whenever this creature mutates, destroy target artifact or enchantment and opponent controls. This is a fine body that you get to play in your main deck and not be embarrassed about it. It's a little bit better on rate than Thrashing Brontodon. There are some things like Vivian where you'd rather just have the Brontodon because of how the interaction works. Uh, but Gem Razor allows you to have main deckable outs to... Things like Song of Creation, Fires of Invention, Wilderness Reclamation, et cetera, et cetera. And we needed that so badly. Yes. If you're going to make it as an aggressive slanted green deck, you need to be able to play, I guess, bonus artifact and enchantment removal. Gem Razor lets you do that. If you're going to make it as a fairer green deck, you need to have flexible artifact and enchantment removal and then will let you do that. And I think both these cards have to exist in this format if we're going to get anywhere. Yeah, will 1G instant destroy target artifact or enchantments cycling for two. So you can very easily main deck this in team of reclamation if you have to. I mentioned I played a bunch of escape protocol decks yesterday as part of the streamer showcase. That's not actually good, is it? I think it is. I think it actually is good. And Ugh. You have to spend more time doing it. Yeah, you're going to get locked out by, uh, what is it, Mystical? Why I just want, always want to call it Mystic Snake for the rest of Frilled my life. Mystic. That'll never stop. Frilled Mystic, thank you. You're going to get locked out by Frilled Mystic at some point. But my point is that I just had Wilt for that reason. And as I played games, I'm just like, oh, this always matters. None of my opponents are prepared for it. They get wrecked every time. And a bunch of my decks should probably have Wilt because of the flexibility. So I'm in the process of reconfiguring now and getting more of the like fairish bant decks to have a couple copies of wilt included yeah completely reasonable the the fact that these cards exist makes me so happy because they solve problems in a way that is not super frustrating like ether gust right 
Uh, you you just get to main deck these, not feel bad, and if the format shifts, you just stop playing them in your main deck or whatever. Whereas Ether Gust, like you feel like you have to main deck it, and then you play against some jerk like me who's playing Slither Wisp, and it does nothing. Probably the main reason why you want to play Slither Wisp right now, quite frankly. All these black, white, blue, black decks is just like, oh yeah, I'm in. Sl- Slither Wisp and Kudro. The reason they are on my top ten, like they're fine cards, right? But they get bonus points for the fact that they don't get tagged by gust smart like they are good they are close enough to compete and if everyone is main decking gust they get so much better and it's like it's not even about oh my opponent had a dead card it's well no this is the card that they are leaning on to be able to interact with their opponents right like wilderness reclamation had scorching dragon fires and storm's wrath at one point and now they're just like i'll just play a bunch of aether gust instead yeah, it's like, okay, there's a dead. lot of my decks that that's the only form of interaction I have. It's just Ether Gust. Right. So uh, if anything can move the format forward, I think it's those two cards. If not those two, then the two Disenchants. I, I think we're going to see some change in this format, which I'm very excited about. Me too. It's it's going to be a battle, but there, there are, are potential upsides and potential cards that play around the existing paradigm. Yeah. Read our number one because my voice has died. Number one card in all of Ikoria. I, I don't know if I believe that. It's the number one consensus card for Jerry and I. Uh, it is the card, I think, most likely to inspire new archetypes. It slots into a bunch of archetypes. It is, of course, Fiend Artisan. Hybrid, hybrid, where hybrid is black or green. Creature Nightmare. Fiend Artisan gets plus one, plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. And then X hybrid tap, sacrifice another creature, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library, activate this ability only anytime you could cast a sorcery. Gerald, what are you getting up to with Fiend Artisan? Why do you rate it so highly? Uh, it's also a 1-1. One, one. Uh, basically, basically, I get tricked by these cards a lot. Because I'm like, ooh, graveyard, like, Golgari beat down stuff. It it just it speaks to me, you know? And mm-hmm. I get in trouble because then my opponent plays like fires into Kenrith and I just lose. But this card, in addition to just being a Tarmogoyf-esque beater, also is just like this engine-y thing. So you can just do stuff like sacrifice my cauldron familiar to get another fiend artisan. And similar to like Whisper Squad, this is not necessarily a thing that you are using as a birthing pot or whatever, you're mostly going to be attacking with this unless you have the mana to spare or you need to find a specific answer like a thrashing brontodon to a thing that your opponent's doing. But I think you just put this in decks where you're going to be sacrificing or self-milling and you just have this as a beater. Like my Rakto Sack deck played Dreadhorde Butcher. This card is so much better than that card. It just does everything. It is an engine. It is aggressive. Good early, good late. No matter what game plan you are trying to execute, Fiend Artisan probably makes it better. I do think this card stretches back to modern very cleanly. It's that powerful. There's so many setups you can do with it. And it, its effect on the game is cheap. That's the biggest thing about it is like you don't have to invest all your mana into this on every turn. And there's spots where just like cycling and getting a different one drop is going to matter a lot. Or you have like cat oven going and you just go get a second cat and now you have some insurance should you lose one in your graveyard. Like there's tons of setups where this makes you safer from your opponent's interaction. And all the while it's just getting larger and larger, perhaps bringing more Fiend Artisans to the party. 
defensive and offensive on a card is what I really look for these days. If you look at the cards that have defined standard recently, that has been what they're about. Uro, it's engine, defensive, offensive. It checks all three of those boxes. You go to Oko. I mean, was Oko a defensive or an offensive card? It was every. Yes. Yes. And I, th- I think Fiend Artisan has a lot of those same qualities. Granted, in a generally more vulnerable and slower package, for sure. I'm not trying to make Fiend Artisan and Oko comparisons. It's just how they operate on a game and how they allow you to instill your game plan on your opponent. There's some similarity there, for sure. Any Garuda deck, any base black sacrifice deck, like Recto Sacrifice, maybe you cut some mountains for stomping grounds so that you can cast this on turn two basically every game. Uh, if you are playing Black Devotion, if that sees a resurgence, uh, this is quite good there. And just there's there's so many different homes for this deck. And then that's not even talking about like, oh, maybe we can build some weirdo Simic self-mill thing, right? Uh, so this card is nice. Yeah, if Mono Black does see a resurgence, it's solely because of this card. And you think about all the enters the battlefield triggers that that deck has, as well as things like potentially Nightmare Shepherd. It's so, so trivial to just maximize this card up and down your curve. And you, you don't have to try. It's just there. And it's going to just win you the game in a bunch of spots. Yeah, it's good. Uh, this is This is not really the type of magic we have been playing, but this is the type of card that those archetypes really needed in that you get some power level just from it being like a two mana four, four and the fact that it is a mana sink and it allows those decks to do things. Like I said, find your one thrashing Brontodon, you know, that's going to come up in a lot of different spots, but just giving people the beatdowns and like putting a clock on them, which is something that the sacrifice deck struggled with a lot. Right. If those decks are going to make a comeback, it, they needed a card like this. I mean, that's what magic is about now. Flexibility, versatility. Fiend Artisan's got it. Also, claim the firstborn. Yeah, that's a nice one too. I, my Rakdos sack decks look so powerful and I didn't want to play it just because it's like boring. But right. I also have a Loris in the deck that I can go get with Fiend Artisan. I'm sacrificing your stuff with claim. And yeah, it, it, it's good. There's also the three mana reanimation spell, which I really like in conjunction with Fiend Artisan. You just always have a Fiend Artisan or you always have a Priest of Forgotten Gods. And if you have one of those two engines going in a deck like Rakdos Sacrifice, how are you losing? Like you just get to do whatever you want all the time. Right. What What's the reanimation spell? Claim fame? No, give me one second. I will get it for you. Sorry, still getting used to the names in this set. No, this is the one that gives like the creature a menace counter. Oh, yeah. Okay. I I, I remember this card. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Uh, talking about, of course, Call of the Death Dweller. This is two colorless black sorcery. Return up to two target creature cards with total converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Put a death touch oh, counter yeah. on either of them. Then put a menace counter on either of them. It just seems like a really, really powerful spell to me. Again, I think this has a space possibly... Going back to modern, I've worked on a bunch of Stitcher Supplier, Fiend Artisan, Death Shadow type decks. Oh my where, god, you're speaking my yeah, language. I mean, this card does a lot for those. Obviously, Fiend Artisan is the headline here, but I would look at Call of the Death Dweller in standard and older formats as well. Dude, this card's busted. I think it's really good. Were you playing four? 
I was not, not in modern. I haven't built around it too much in standard. I think I just had one copy in my Rakdos Sacrifice deck. Okay. Looking at it right now. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But, but I mean, maybe I'll play it and just be like, oh, I'm supposed to have tons of copies. I think it's hard to juice your graveyard. Whereas in modern, I had Stitcher Supplier. So I'm just right. always full up. Yeah. Like you need more one drops and you probably need more self mill stuff to actually go hard on it. Right. But, but yeah, this is, this is solid. I mean, certainly if you're doing the thing where like, you're playing Rakdos or Orzov with the companion Luris, then you want some copies of this card. Yeah, I need to get you in the loop on this modern deck because there's no question that like some things about it I've messed up thus far. But dude, like, is go- it going to be like Niv Magus Elemental? Or are we going to break it again? Uh, I, I hope it's not like Niv Magus Elemental. But Cabal Therapist, Stitcher Supplier, Death Shadow, Fiend Artisan, uh, Luris in the sideboard. Like there's there's something really powerful going on there, and if you figure out the right interactive spells, I think this deck will be quite good. Obviously, you get your disruption too. Thoughtseize, Inquisition, Molder Hulk. This is modern, so gonna pass on Molder Hulk for the time being. <laughs> but uh, I do have like Field of Ruin to interact with even the big mana decks because I'm mono black right now. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm excited about this archetype, and Fiend Artisan is a big part of it. Dude, get me some Molder Hulks to get back my Ghost Quarters, and I'm in. Uh, that's cute. We can talk about it. We can look into it. Dude, the splash is free. Let's be honest. We can't play Loris anymore then. Ooh, that's true. Molar Hulk costs a little too much for Loris. Right. Dude, Loris Death Shadow is nice. Yeah. Still working on that one. You lose Street Wraith, which is, it's big. And it I is don't big. know that you can overcome that. But I just think you have to build your deck in a different fashion. Like you have to be more comfortable to playing a longer game and that's what cabal therapist is supposed to transition you towards where you're just you can, like okay you you have nothing in your hand anyway we'll play this game for 10 more turns i don't care you can cut street wraith if dismember is a good card in the format and you can just load up on those lord that's a that's Makes a thing sense. i used to do when i was building like bigger death shadow decks where mm-hmm. you would play against a decent amount of like mirrors and jun and stuff and you wanted to draw gas but you also wanted to be able to turn two death shadow Okay. Yeah, my, like, my deck basically has no possibility of a turn two Death Shadow right now. And I don't yeah. I don't know if that matters or not. Uh I mean it, it matters to some degree. Like you I think you just want dismember anyway, especially since your your life total is gonna be kinda high compared to normal shadow decks. Anyway, yeah, we can we can take this offline. I'm in. Sure. Let's do it. Now let's just build let's just talk for three hours about building this deck on this podcast. Niv Megas Elemental coming to uh magic online ptq near you <laughs> let's hope not niv megas part two that's game good luck